0: Hi, this is Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Back Matter Podcast, I'll be talking with Christine Catherine Rush. Based in Oregon, Chris is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling fiction author and editor who has written a number of books in many genres, particularly si- science fiction and fantasy, including the popular Retrieval Artist and Fay and Diving series. Her books have been published both conventionally and self-published, and while her books have mostly been published under her own name, uh, you can also find her work her current work, published under the pen names Christine Grayson and Chris Nelscott. Chris has won numerous awards for her writing across many genres, including the Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine Reader's Choice Award, the Asimov's Reader's Choice Award, and the Prestigious Hugo Award. In addition to her fiction writing and her editing work, Chris has been blogging about writing, freelancing, and the publishing industry since 2009. She has turned her blogging work into a number of books, including the latest, Closing the Deal on Your Terms, which covers really important things that all authors should know about, including negotiating agents and contracts. I definitely suggest listeners who aren't already doing so follow Chris's blog. at chriswrites.com and think about supporting her blogging work through Patreon. Uh, In this interview, we're going to talk about Chris's career, writing agents and agencies, and the publishing industry generally. So thank you, Chris, for being on the Back Matter podcast.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for asking me.
0: Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin stories. And um, I know you've, you've had a very varied career. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first realized you were interested in writing.
1: I think I was born interested in writing or storytelling or something. I have this vivid memory of being a child. It must have been about three. Um, And everybody in the room was reading. And I went to each person and said, would you play with me? And they said, no, I'm reading. And so sometimes I think becoming a writer was my personal bid for attention. Um, But uh, honestly, I can't remember a time when I didn't want to be a writer. I actually wrote my first quote-unquote book when I was seven. Um and uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of that young ephemerist stuff that I hope never gets out. <laughs>
0: oh, and but, I uh, I, believe...
1: you know, so I was driven that way from the beginning.
0: Um and I think I heard a story in in an interview with you where um for your first writing gig you insisted on being paid.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm that person. Um I, I couldn't understand. They wanted me to write I was in high school. They wanted me to write the high school column for the local evening newspaper. And um, I found out that I wasn't going to be paid. And I said, well, aren't all the other reporters at that paper paid? And they said, yes. And I said, well, why am I different? And the journalism, we had a journalism instructor at our our high school. Um, He said, "Um, nobody's been paid before. I said, well, have you asked? And he said, no. He said, but now that you mention it, it's kind of logical. I ended up getting paid.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think we'll get to this later, but that theme of just just ask um, is is something that runs through a lot of your your work and your your advice to to authors. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, what was your first job related to writing or editing?
1: First job related to writing or editing, not counting things like that. I guess you know, doing the paper and stuff. Um, I would actually say that my first job related to writing and editing that that was working for WORT Radio in Madison, cool. Wisconsin. Um, they are uh, a listener-sponsored radio station, and they had um, an ad, a want ad, in the local weekly, advertising weekly um, that they needed reporters, and they were really clear that it was a volunteer position. I was in college, and I remember being so nervous when I went there. They, they made you sit and write a, a piece right in front of them on typewriters, which tells you how long ago that was. And it was really hot. So it was in August or something. They didn't have air conditioning and they hired me on the spot. And uh, eventually it became a paid gig because I became the news director, um, the interim news director repeatedly because I never wanted the job. So they'd give it to me, hire somebody else. The other person would quit. Then I'd come back. (laughs) I think I probably spent three years as interim news director, but not Consecutively,
0: and you did this while you mentioned you did this while you were in college. Um, what were you studying at the time?
1: I was studying history. I uh, did take courses at the journalism school, but uh, I studied history because that's what I was interested in. Initially, what I wanted to do was write a novel, a historical novel, and combine an English and history degree and have my my thesis thing be uh, a historical novel. But both departments said no, so I didn't do anything like that. But I still studied
0: history. Um, that reminds me, uh, preparing for this interview, I came across uh, a statement you made, um, I think on Kobo Writing Life a few years ago, that writing is one of those things that you can't go to school for. Um, this is a really huge debate in the literary world, uh, particularly, I think I would say nowadays with the sort of explosion of MFA writing programs. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are about that. Why can't you, if if you still believe that, uh, why why can't you go to school to learn writing?
1: Well, you can go and take classes to learn writing. And what I meant by that actually is probably you can't go to university to learn writing unless the university actually has instructors who have made a living as a writer. Um, I was really frustrated by this early on. Um, I went to Clarion um, after I had graduated from college. Um, And I had taken when I was in college, I had taken a bunch of creative writing classes. And um, and that's where I met Kevin J. Anderson, who does the Dune books and a whole bunch of other stuff, the Dan Shamble stuff. Um, And I did it because I wanted to write stories while I was doing homework, and that was my excuse. But, I mean, one of our very first—Kevin, I still joke about it—one of our first instructors had published a single short story for payment and copies. um, And that was his credential as far as we were concerned. Um, He had um, a doctorate from one of those prestigious writing schools. I can't remember which one. Um, But he had never written for a living. He'd never written more than a handful of short stories. And there he was teaching us. At that point, Kevin, who was 18, had published 100 short stories in the small press and been paid for each one of them. Um, And um, so I went to Clarion. Got taught writing actually by working writers. Came back. I was a reporter for a magazine or news magazine in Madison at the time called Isthmus. It's still there. And they um, assigned me. I, I queried them saying, you know, why, should, why did I end up getting taught by real writers at one thing and not at others? So I did a, a whole piece on the University of Wisconsin's MFA program. And I talked to the guy who was running it. And he said they didn't hire people to teach writing were professional writers. They taught people who would get people their master's degree in writing so they could go on to get their PhD in writing so that they could go on to teach writing, which, um, I was a lot more outspoken then than I am now in some ways. Um, cause I didn't know how to pick my battles and I was just appalled. That was kind of a contentious interview. Um, cause I was mad. Um, I was like, well, you know, writers should be taught by writers. They shouldn't be taught by people who want to be writers. Um, and it, that, that whole MFA thing, that's not unusual. It wasn't unusual to the University of Wisconsin. It wasn't unusual to other places. I know a lot of professional writers who wanted to teach at a university and were told to get their Ph.D. first. And I mean, poor Kevin just did that. He, he, was, he was teaching at, uh, I don't know, um, Colorado, one of the Colorado universities. They made him go and, and get an MFA, <laughs> even though he's published hundreds, literally hundreds of novels.
0: Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. um, uh, Because I think a lot of people who go into MFAs, at least nowadays, um, are sort of looking for some kind of elevated status that they're looking, they're looking to be literary writers. And there does seem to be a kind of contradiction in the sort of general view that a literary writer is supposed to be someone with some kind of deep radical insights into human nature or something like that, and then getting a credential like a PhD.
1: Yeah, some of it is, there's a whole history, and I cannot remember the name of the book, and um, I wish I had it with me, but there's a history that somebody wrote about writer's workshops at universities. And they were started in the 40s, right after the war, um, for the most part. And they were started by writers and poets. Um, But, uh, you know, it was kind of a guru kind of thing. And it it then kind of morphed after that. And then um, my sister was a college professor, um, of English. And she pointed out something to me that had not registered until I was much older. And that was that every professor, every high school writing teacher for that matter, has to read every word of whatever is submitted to them, no matter how awful it is, which is the opposite of being an editor. An editor can read a paragraph and go, oh, that thing isn't any good. And then move on to the next thing. Um, a professor has to keep reading it. And, um, that makes them want to cut down on the amount of stuff that they're going to read. So it's easier to assign rewrites than it is to assign a new work because the rewrite, you can say, oh, you know, you need to cut 300 words out of this thing. And all they have to do then, they don't even have to reread it. They just have to look to make sure the 300 words were cut. Or, you know, if they made a suggestion and nowadays if they use track changes or something on Word, they could just go in and look at the track changes. They don't even have to reread the piece. So. That made sense to me, and it kind of evolved into why rewriting has become such a thing. It really has nothing to do with the students. It has nothing to do with improving anybody's writing. It does make teaching easier.
0: Um, pardon the digression, but I I wasn't uh, fully aware of how much work you'd done in journalism earlier in ca- your career. And um, we're talking on a day when in the United States, hundreds of news organizations have banded together to um, assert they are not enemies of the people. Ugh. And I was wondering, as a former journalist and someone living in the United States in this moment, what you br- briefly what, what you think about what's what's happening?
1: What's happening in the United States or the enemy of the people thing?
0: The enemy of the people thing more specifically.
1: The enemy of the people thing is appalling. Um, We need a free press, uh, and we need it to keep people in line. I mean, uh, President Nixon was brought down by the free press, and we needed that to to happen. Um, We used to look at journalists as heroes. Uh, A free press is difficult, and there are rules that the press follows, and there are things that the press has to do in order to maintain their integrity in certain Parts of the so-called press aren't doing it, like Fox News. But most of the press is, and it's very frustrating, this almost totalitarian totalitarian way of looking and dealing with the press. It's a little scary. It's a little frightening. It's really a threat to democracy, and I'm glad that all of these papers are speaking out. I'm glad they spoke out before. it's something that disturbs me greatly, to be honest with you.
0: One of the things I'm actually curious to talk to, to you about as as a journalist is um, one thing that's become conventional since the inauguration of Donald Trump as president is headlines, at least in the, on websites, in prominent news organizations like the New York Times reporting on his day-to-day, minute-to-minute moods. Uh, what do you think about that convention? Do you think that's something that journalists should be reporting on?
1: Well, they don't have a lot of other stuff that they can report directly from the president. Um, and also you have to remember that this man is somewhat erratic. There's an awful lot of people who have been worried since he, before he was elected as to his state of mind. So I do think it's newsworthy to report on the man's state of mind. I don't think it's newsworthy to play the games that they've been playing. And I've, you should see me shout at my television or occasionally pick up a newspaper and scream at it. Um, as I said, I'm <laughs> I am not shy about such things, but, you know, he, he's very good at manipulating the media and it's really obvious and it was obvious during the election. He, he's been in, in broadcast media for decades and I was in broadcast media. There are ways to get the broadcast press's attention that he knows. He knows them inside out and backwards. It's taken two years almost of his presidency for the media to figure out that he's playing games with them that he's doing things like he's going to release a piece of information today so you don't pay attention to the real news over here. Um, He's not following any conventions, and they're not mentally moving quickly enough to follow the the games he's playing. Um, Those are legitimate games. An awful lot of people do it. That's why sometimes you hire publicists and things like that, because they know how to make news. They know how to play those games um we've never had a president before who's known how to play those games he puts me in mind of all things of, have you heard of the john f kennedy Richard nixon debate that happened in 1960 the television one that yes. if you listen put on the radio nixon won but if you list, if you watched it kennedy won um if you look at the history of the united states you will see that there are there are presidents who brought in new media and new ways of doing things all the way along f- DR was one, Kennedy was one. Um, Trump, unfortunately, is one. He has changed everything. Um, and the journalists are very, very far behind because they expect everything to be the way that it was before. And it's not.
0: Yeah, you reminded me of an interesting detail of that that famous debate where um, Nixon saw Nixon was going to have makeup put on, and then he saw that Kennedy wasn't going to, and so to sort of assert himself as an equal, he he decided not to get makeup, and then, of course he was much less photogenic than Kennedy. Uh, oh, and yeah. that, that's one of the reasons that the broadcast made Kennedy look better.
1: That's one of them. The other one is that poor Nixon is the kind of person you put him under hot lights, and and he had flop sweat. So, you know, Kennedy, for some reason, he was, he was cool no matter what. Apparently,
0: <laughs> Yeah, uh, actually, just, just the last question I have about, about this issue is uh, related to what you're saying about the media not catching up. One thing that I think people uh, don't get is that, and this is, of course, just me as a sort of civilian foreigner speculating, but Trump can literally sit in front of a television in the White House and tweet something and see it on television. within within moments. So he's, he's of the mindset, like it's, it's very, it sounds sort of crude, but he's putting those images on television, basically with a remote control.
1: Yes, he is. And he knows how to do it. He knows how to get it, get it done. Um, And uh, it's, I just, I don't like seeing my fellow journalists jump in lockstep. Not that all of them have, there have been some there has been some spectacular reporting from the Washington Post and the New York Times. There's been some spectacular reporting from the Atlantic, ProPublica. Um, it just the problem is that um, in the Trump era, everything moves so fast that what's news this morning isn't news this afternoon. We knew that was coming. I wrote a short story about it about 15 years ago, uh, which is it's up, but it's it's sadly out of date. It's called. Um, Oh, shoot, I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, it was first published in Analog where the journalists were putting stuff on the web. Um, And, you know, I postulated that they would have to update their stories every 15 minutes and nobody slept. Um, To me, that seemed like, you know, I don't know, something was going to happen 30, 40 years from now. But no, it it started happening in 2015 and hasn't slowed down. If you listen to NPR's All Politics podcast, um, they occasionally start, talking about their week, and these, these reporters are exhausted because they, they think they can go home on a Friday night, and it turns out they can't because so much news is breaking.
0: Thanks for being a game to uh, talk about this. I really appreciate it. Um, moving back to your own story, um, I, I just found out this morning that at one point in your career, you worked at a textbook publishing company, um, and I gather this meant that you had to approach people with requests for licensing rights. Um, yeah. so that their their material could be partially republished. And I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear how this actually works. Um, for example, e- even professors writing academic books will have to get rights to do straightforward things like you know, reproduce snippets of poetry that they're analyzing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your experience was like dealing with people trying to get those licensing rights.
1: Sure. Um, let me give a caveat on that. I mean, I've done it since, and I've done it in the last couple of years, but when I was working at the textbook publishing company, um, I actually got that job because I knew how to turn on a computer, which I'm not kidding. Um, it's that long ago, desktop computers were just starting, and I actually knew how to turn one on, so they figured I knew computers. Um, and so some of the, the stuff that we did at that point in time was done you know, the old, you know, walk up the hill both directions in the snow kind of way. Um, but uh, licensing is it's the same. Poetry, you mentioned poetry. Poetry is particularly hard because it's tiny. Um, it's a small thing. Songs are that way, too. And so when you ask to quote a line from a poem or a song, you're asking to quote quite a bit um, as opposed to, you know, a paragraph out of a novel. That's, that's not that much. Um, and the licensing rights are like any other contracted right. It, you can't tell just by glancing at it if something's in the public domain. You can't tell if who owns that particular right. I, um, the one that I came across most recently that was difficult for me, I wrote a story for um, a, a, a graphic novel thing that, about Emily Dickinson. And to quote Emily, you'd think Emily Dickinson died in the 19th century. You'd think that her poetry is in the public domain. It is not. Um, it isn't because in, I believe it was the 1950s or the 1960s, a Harvard professor, and I may be getting this wrong, it might be Yale, I'm doing this off the top of my head, um, mandated what the punctuation was. There was always a debate about the punctuation in Emily Dickinson's poetry because um, initially when it was first published, they took out a whole punctuation. This guy added it back in, the stuff that was in her manuscripts, and then he copyrighted the form, or the university did. So if you want to quote an Emily Dickinson poem, you need – and use the proper punctuation. You need to get licensed permission from them. Now, I don't know what that costs because I just used the uh, unpunctuated stuff in my story, which is in the public domain. But that took a lot of research. And it may be that you contact somebody like this professor or, or Harvard, and they say, oh, in order to license it, you have to pay us $25 they may say, in order to license it, you have to pay us $25,000. It just depends. Um, And it has really nothing to do with, um, you know, the project you're doing or indeed the value of what they're licensing. It's just whatever is in their company at the time and what they're supposed to do.
0: And, um, for any perhaps self published authors listening who might be panicking because they maybe quoted something that they're now you know in a in a novel or something like that, a line that they um didn't license and might have had to what are what are the realistic chances that someone's going to really go after you if you publish something like that?
1: It depends on who the someone is um so in some or you know ch- there's some chance that nothing's going to happen to you. Um, and there's other chances where you're going to have your butt suit like crazy, especially with songs. Um, a lot of songs are owned by big music companies, and they don't license anything for free. Um, and they actually have employees who will. It's easier now. If you had published it 30 years ago in a magazine, oh, well, they may never have seen it. But now if it's online anywhere, um, all they have to do is a search, and they may find it. So uh, your chances go up, especially the more popular your piece gets, um, and uh, you're better off licensing it ahead of time. You really are, or not using it, or um, with song lyrics though that you can even get nailed on paraphrasing. There's a George R. R. Martin novel called Armageddon Rag, which I think is one of his best books ever, um, and he paraphrased a whole bunch of song lyrics, and um, he ended up getting nailed with permissions on that quite badly losing his entire advance, which was not big because at that point, George wasn't famous Um, to, he lost it all to um, licensing and permissions. Um, And that can happen to anybody if you're not careful. So yeah, I would go back, especially if you're indie published and you directly quoted, say a a song from uh, Taylor Swift, who is very defensive of her copyright. I would take it out. I would just say the Taylor Swift song, whatever it is, was playing on the radio and let the reader figure it out.
0: Speaking of um, George R. R. Martin, the noted fantasy writer, um, that leads me to my next question, which is, um, I, I don't have your timeline exactly figured out, but I do know that you edited the magazine of fantasy and science fiction for a time. And I've got a question about that. Um, I think that for people on the outside looking in, editors of magazines like this are these serious gatekeepers, gatekeepers and people who have incredible power to choose winners and losers and I was wondering if you were in a role where you had to make decisions like that and if for example you ever had to deal with people who felt they were rejected for unfair reasons
1: oh all the time I had to deal with people who felt they were rejected for unfair reasons um I don't like the phrase winners and losers um because it all comes down to taste and as an editor you pick basically you know the taste that you have you're hired for your taste um, which is why whenever in a magazine the editors change, the magazine changes, there's no editor that's going to have the exact same taste as some previous editor. And so you got to keep that in mind just because one editor doesn't like your work, another one actually might. Um, when I was – I edited Pulp House first and then I edited the magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. And there were some stories I could never have bought for Fantasy and Science Fiction that I, I bought for Pulp House. It, it, Pulp House had a different edge. Um, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction was softer. Conversely, there were some soft stories that I never would have bought for Pulp House that I contacted the writer when I got to FNSF and said, Is that story still available? Because I loved it, but it wasn't right for Pulp House. So each publication has its own taste and tone as well. Um, but writers, they can be crazy. Um, there was a writer. Um, who got out of prison? Um, he was in prison for abusing women, um, raping and beating women. Um, served his time in prison. Wrote brilliant science fiction. Of course, he didn't tell anybody that you know he was he had been in prison. Um, I rejected his the first story he sent me. It was just it was it was too misogynistic for my taste, and I got back a five-page single-spaced incredibly vicious letter about what he was going to do to me if he ever met me. Um, and he described it in uh, real terms, which I put in the nutball file and made a note of his name. Um, he sent that to, same kind of letter to every female editor he interacted with, um, To the point, and he uh, he didn't do that to the male editors. Um, a couple of them published his stories. He was nominated for an award. Um, he was going to show up at the Worldcon and... Uh, <laughs> We let Worldcon, and this was a number of years ago, obviously it was in the 90s, we let the Worldcon security people know because he was such a threat, because he'd made those kind of threats. So there is that side of things as well. I mean, there's the people who are just disappointed, the people who are rude, the people who, who say nasty things to you, um, and then there are these guys. And he wasn't the only one. He was just the only one I ever met in person.
0: You know, I was going to I was going to ask you, um, do you think things have improved for women working in the publishing industry? And then I just immediately had a cascade of memories of, uh, you know, accounts I've found in, in you know articles by journalists who are women or you know there was gamergate and things like that of, of just getting viciously attacked now in the open on Twitter uh, in addition to getting um you know those kinds of emails and things like that and I mean I guess I guess rather than ask you if things have changed my question would be what 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 do you recommend someone do if they sort of become a target for something like that
1: Well let me give you answer your the question you meant to ask first and then um, answer what they should do have things changed? Yes, things have changed, um, and in a positive direction, even though it doesn't seem like it. A lot of younger women go after women of my generation, and I'm going—I'm in my 50s—and um, say, "We allowed, in quotes, all of this stuff to happen to us." Um, you know, the—I could make—I could go on and on and on and on for pages. I could write uh, basically a 500-page autobiography of the stuff. That is, you know, the hashtag Me Too stuff that happened to me. There was no legal recourse for anything in the early '90s, that or in the late in the 1980s or whatever that happened to us on the job. That is all post Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas in the United States. These laws that protect women that act whether they work or not, they they exist. Um, they didn't exist before. The fact that people believe you now and that they don't consider it funny. Um, that's that's different and that's better. Um, and I'm, I'm it, it's it's kind of a hard mindset shift for some of us who are older in the fact that we really had to put up with this stuff because there was no recourse. So, you know, we got this kind of hardened shell and we're like, well, why aren't you just dealing with it yourself? And now we realize, oh, you know what? They don't have to. And that's a, a good thing. And so it's, a, it's kind of hard for some women, older women in particular, to make that shift to kind of say, oh, you know, there's a recourse. We can actually do something because women didn't know that before. Um, so what can women do? The first thing, if you're, do, if you're having an issue with somebody online, the first thing you do is do not engage. Don't. Stay away from them because that's what they want. They want the attention. Block them. Um, report them, definitely report them, um, and make them, and just don't give them a response, an answer, unfriend them on Facebook if they're your friend. Just let them be. Um, let them go off and, and do the other thing. Um, if they're harassing you in person, defend yourself verbally because a lot of these people are bullies and cowards, and they'll back away. Um, that that was my way of doing things. My elbows are my best friend because I used it elbow people in the stomach if they grabbed me in the back um and and things like that um but again you know if you can avoid it um get our way from them and then go report it because you have that opportunity now Um, make sure other women know make sure men know because nowadays as opposed to 25 years ago men actually believe that this stuff happens so there, and a lot of men are being harassed themselves, you know, by by some women and definitely, you know, by men as well. So, um, the more you talk about it, the more you put sunlight on it. You know, it's that old journalism cliche: things come out in the sunlight, and sunlight heals. So talk about it. Make sure it's there. You can lose your entire life to fighting this stuff. The biggest thing you should do, though, on social media is just not engage.
0: Um, this uh, my next question, going going back to your your uh, career, um, is unfortunately out of order because I had Pulp House and the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction backwards. Uh, <laughs> in order. Um, but uh, I wanted to. You've written i I've, I've seen you refer to Pulp House uh, quite a bit, including having to pay off some debts from that. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the idea was behind Pulp House and and what happened.
1: Well, Dean and I, Dean Wesley Smith, he's my husband, he he wasn't at the time, but um, he and I decided to start uh, Hardback Magazine. Dean loved those anthology series from um, the the 60s, you know, and so did I, to be honest with you, Um, Orbit, Universe, all of that. We wanted to do our own, and we did it, and the early 90s, late 1980s was the big era of uh, limited edition books that collectors used, and we realized that you could make money, um, enough to pay authors by doing a limited edition, which is what we wanted to do. And that's what Paul Pass was. We, um, I just, because as you mentioned earlier at the beginning of this interview, I always figure, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. Uh, and Dean was an architect. So he did what architects do, which is make a model. He did an issue zero. It was a blank book, just showing people what we were going to do. Rather than have to explain it. So I took the issue zero and I mailed it to all my favorite authors and said, would you write for us? Well, that had never happened to them before. They had always been approached by somebody with a great idea for a magazine or anthology and then asked, would you write for it if it happens? They've never been sent a free book and said, would you write something to go on there? So everybody said yes, which was good which was bad because from that moment on we were chasing dollars rather than making dollars. Um, we sold out our first press run, but it was limited edition. So we couldn't make another print run. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, so we were just always running, running, running trying to, to make it work. And it worked just fine until the first Gulf war, which most people probably don't remember, but it was, it was a television war. Everybody dropped what they were doing and watched TV um, and watched the war and mail order crashed limited editions lived through mail order and we we went from making hundreds of thousands a month to making nothing in this you know in december january february of that year it was it it was gone and since we were never ahead of the money we were always behind the money that was catastrophic we didn't move quickly enough we ended up taking loans because we thought it was going to change we had been a debt-free company until then that was our mistake um it, it ended up crashing and uh, Dean and I used our writing to repay de- debt because writers in the United States can't go bankrupt. We will lose our copyrights. So uh, we were not go- about to do that. So we just wrote like crazy until we paid back every dime.
0: It's uh, fascinating you bring up the impact of war on, on you know a, a publishing business. Um, in a recent interview I did for this podcast with Carla King, she wrote about how after 9-11, the travel book industry collapsed in the U.S. for a time,
1: I didn't realize that. That makes complete sense.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really amazing how these world. You know, I think people often don't understand how like kind of specific the area that a certain genre might be addressing is to circumstances kind of out there.
1: Oh, the the, the uh, uh, spy novel disappeared when the ball when the Berlin Wall fell. It just completely vanished um, for a good decade. It's back now, but. You know, there was a period of time where you couldn't sell a Cold War novel, a spy novel at all. And those poor people who had made their entire careers doing that, I think the only one who survived was Jean Le Carre. I don't think anybody else did.
0: Um, Speaking of entire careers, um, like many other people I've interviewed for this podcast, your career has spent a lot of huge changes in the book publishing industry. And one thing I've learned is that it's easy to get lost with really general questions about change. Uh, So I thought I'd ask you something specific. And that's um, when did when did Amazon first come on your radar?
1: 2009. Um, Well, Amazon, the book or the the website came on my radar. I think I've had an account since it started, to be honest with you. I'm an early adapter. So as a reader, I was ordering books off of Amazon real early. But uh, with the Kindle and stuff and the changes in book publishing, it was 2009. I was starting to hear all this stuff. And then a friend pulled me aside and said, you really have to investigate this. Um, So we put a and then we put a one of my retrieval artist short stories up. I think it was the retrieval artist. It was a Word document with a terrible cover. And it's sold for $15 in one month, you know, and we've had like a dollar on it. And I I walked in that check to Dean and I said, look at this, we are going to make a fortune. Most people would have been disappointed, but I'm thinking this is a short story nobody's ever heard of on a platform, nobody's ever tried. This is just going to keep going. And I was right.
0: And, And so you embraced it from the beginning.
1: Oh, absolutely. I was like, this is freedom here. And we had the skills, too. We had a publishing company. We have had businesses. We knew what to do. So we didn't just throw stuff up and hope that it worked. We actually set up a publishing company, and we set up ways of doing things that had to continually change (laughs) as the technology changed. But it it was great freedom for both of us. It was like, oh, great, all that stuff we couldn't sell or that New York wasn't interested in or that uh, had gone out of print, we could put all that back up. And we did.
0: And was this after the point where you write about having fired your agents?
1: Oh, yeah. I fired my agents in the early part of this century. Yeah. Um, My last, I don't know, dozen books or so I sold myself, if not more.
0: And so where were you selling them before Amazon came around with the Kindle?
1: Oh, well, I I was selling to traditional publishing. Um, I was doing the deals myself. Right,
0: right. I've got. I've actually got quite a few questions to ask you about that. You've written about it recently. Um, uh, but before doing that, I wanted to ask you a question that's, you know, a kind of controversial in the publishing industry these days, but isn't isn't on the business side of things. Um, one topic that's trending right now, as it were, is the concept of cultural appropriation. Um, there was an example of this debate the other day in an article in the Guardian, where an author gave the argument for writing about a character very different from himself. In this case, a teenage Egyptian girl. Um, and as I gather, you you have a series in which the main character is an African-American man, a detective, I believe. Uh, mm-hmm. The series is set in the south side of Chicago in the 1960s. Um, I was wondering if, if if, if you were approached with someone to ask you about what you think about the charge of cultural appropriation, what would, what would you say or what would you recommend authors think about when they think about this issue?
1: They really need to think about it hard. Um, because, and I did, I, I started writing the Smokey Dalton books in the 90s. Um, we don't know... Each other. One of the things about writing is that, you know, you don't know what a writer's history and background is. You don't know who their family is. You don't know who their friends are. You don't know where they grew up. You only know what they have told you and maybe not even that. And you know what they look like. So you can't just look at someone and make an assumption that they are appropriating another culture. You have no idea if they worked in that culture, know that culture or are part of that culture. You just don't know. So there's that danger in making the accusation. The other side of it is um, you can't just write about a culture you don't know by willy-nilly making them whatever. You have to respect it. You have to know it. You have to figure it out. You can't just you know do it. Um, and uh, really, I think the key word here is respect. You have to have a lot of respect for that culture and for what is going on in that culture before you even – try to write about it. So I'm not going to say to you, don't write about that, whatever culture it is. I'm going to say, if you've not had a lot of experience with that culture, but it interests you, then research it, go figure it out and approach it with warmth and respect.
0: Thanks. Thanks for that really great and and clear answer. Um, I'm not surprised to hear that you, you've thought about it it deeply. Um, Uh, move, moving on uh, to, I've, I've invoked this a couple times, but more to the business side of things in publishing. Um, one important theme in your writing is is that you just uh, online uh, is that you just have to insist over and over again that being an author is a business. And I was wondering why you think so many people who start getting into it uh, don't approach being an author like running a business.
1: They're taught not to. They are actually taught not to. That writing is, quote, an art. And if you actually had a video going, you'd see me making air quotes. Um, it is an art and it's a craft, um, but it is one that is a business as well. Um, this is part of the problem with the MFA thing. Um, I grew up in a family of professors. Everybody in my family, with the exception of one person, was uh, a professor with the exception of, besides me, my, my other sister wasn't a professor. Um and uh, much as I dearly love professors, they really are isolated from the world. They don't have to make all these decisions that business people have to make. They don't have to – I mean you have to worry about your job like anybody who's in middle management and that sort of thing. But you don't have to make decisions about whether or not you're going to pay the rent versus pay the employee. Um, so, you know, they don't understand some of this, this business stuff. And a lot of people got into professorships and everything else so that they could practice their art. Um, and so they divorced art from commerce. And if you're going to be a commercial artist, which is what a writer is if they're published, then you need to understand that the commercial part is as important as the artist part. Um, and I, the reason I stress it over and over again is that. Writing careers don't disappear because the writer gets bad or because they wrote a terrible book. The writing career disappears because they didn't learn business. And so they get hit with some kind of business problem, a tax issue, a bad agent, uh, you know, a publisher who really hurts them. And they have no way of figuring out how to survive it. And to me, it's all about business. Learning business is about survival. If you want to have a career that runs for 40 years, you have to learn business or you're just not going to
0: have one. Speaking of publishers hurting authors, um, one of the notable things about your work on the publishing industry is not just that you... you, uh, talk about it like it's a business, uh, but that it's a business that is particularly read in tooth and claw. <laughs> um, yes. And I wanted to uh, get into that by asking you about a recent controversy involving a literary agency, uh, which you wrote about extensively, where the bookkeeper was caught embezzling funds for years. Uh, but just before we dive into that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a literary agency is. What What is it supposed to be doing?
1: Well, a literary agent, the literary agents in the agents in the book industry, um, came about long before computers existed. And there was a reason for, for them to exist. Um, if you were a writer who lived in the hinterlands, which is not New York City or not London or not Toronto, um, you wanted to, be, what writers used to do is they used to go into the city and then they'd shop their wares to um, publishers in the city. But if you didn't live anywhere near the city, you couldn't do that. So you hired somebody to do it for you. And in theory, and I say theory, the agent was the person to do that. Um, They charged 10% at that point in time. It's not fair to say that um, they were more honest then. They probably weren't. I know of a number of them who definitely weren't, but um, they were a necessary evil for a while. Um, when this is how long it's been, uh, when the telephone became ubiquitous, it became less necessary to have an agent. And once the internet came into existence, you didn't need one ever, ever again. Um, but it took a long time to get rid of that custom. Um, and we're still not rid of it. People still think agents are necessary. They're not, um, they don't need to shop your work. And in fact, they can actually hurt you worse by shopping your work than they can by, um, just stay away.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've got a, a bunch of questions to ask you about that, but could you could you uh tell the story a little bit about, you know, what happened with the book, bookkeeper at the prestigious literary agency Donatio and Olsen?
1: Well, the bookkeeper um, started working with Donadio and Olsen in the previous century in the 90s. And um was, I don't know all of the details because as I've looked through some of it, it's become clearer that this person was actually contracted by the agency. The agency didn't have its own in-house bookkeeper. It had this bookkeeping organization, but I'm not clear whether he started as a bookkeeper and then moved to a contractor or what. Um, but he was the one who handled not just the contracts and the royalty statements, but the money. And then he would send the money to the authors. Um, and, uh, a long time ago, agents got – publishers got really tired of sending checks to writers, and they figured that if all of the – Donatio and Olson, for example, represented 20 writers um, for this particular publishing house, it's easier to send a check to Donatio and Olson and let them pull out their 10 percent or their 15 percent and then forward the checks to the authors rather than the publisher do that. Um, and, um, that's how, you know, it ended up being that literary agents handled all of a writer's money back in the, before that the the money got split and it got split 15 years. Well, actually it got sent to the writer. The writer was supposed to send the money to the agent. Writers didn't always do that. You know, writers are writers and chronically short of money. So they, they, it, it got really dicey anyway, all the money for writers would go to the agency, and that's what was going on with Donatio and Olson, and they were supposed to then forward every 85% of that money to the writer, um, but uh, Donatio and Olson stopped doing it. Uh, The bookkeeper was pocketing it, and he was pocketing huge sums of money. Um, And, you know, there were a number of writers, including the author of of the book Fight Club and the movie Fight Club, whose last name I cannot pronounce, so I'm not even going to try, who was getting poorer and poorer. You couldn't figure out why all of his money was drawing up or it was going into the pocket of this bookkeeper. This was so severe, and the uh, agency was so clueless that they actually had a meeting in March – uh, with his lawyers and their lawyers um, to try to handle this. Eventually, it ended up in court, and that's how everybody found out about it. The New York Daily News broke the story. It was, it's a nightmare, and they say that uh, $3.5 million um, went through his pockets, but they don't know. That's the thing. This has been going on since the early 2000s. They don't know how much money this guy's been pocketing. They don't know how much money writers have lost.
0: Yeah, thanks thanks for that great telling. Um it's it was one of the things that fascinated me about this story especially of, you know, someone famous like Chuck Palahniuk, you know, seeing his bank account dwindle and do nothing until, you know, it became very extreme, uh, was the the sort of background set of expectations that so many people had about how things worked. Um, And so, for example, no one else at this agency had any insight into the money that was coming in, uh, that this bookkeeper was handling. And you'd think, you'd think, oh, we don't. Okay.
1: No, we don't know how involved they they actually were. They say they weren't. And if I were a lawyer, I'd advise them to say that, too. We don't know. Um, But there is expectation. Writers, when I was first getting an agent, trying to hire an agent, I was told by a number of other writers that it's like a marriage. Now, at that point, I had just gotten divorced, so I wasn't really happy to hear that, you know, um, having my agent was like getting married. Um, And, you know, there was that whole trust thing. You're supposed to trust your agent. I'm really smart about business. I was really stupid about agents. I didn't check their financials. I didn't check their credentials. Basic stuff you do when you hire anybody. I didn't check to see if they were bonded. No writer does that I know of. Um, And yet they trust their entire income to these people. It's a mistake.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really, uh, I I hadn't thought it through, but reading your work, um, you know, the kind of almost, I don't know if Byzantine is the right word, but there's just these so many different obscure ways that agents and other middle persons can go about uh, depriving you of money as an author or, or even depriving you of opportunities because they're not necessarily looking out for your interests, maybe because you don't make enough money for them kind of paradoxically
1: that's part of it. Part of it too is an overwhelming sense that uh, let's, let's assume that we're talking about an agent who is a good person, an agent who is an ethical person and an agent who tries to make money for their clients. I have as a writer, um, 400 short stories and over several, uh, over 150 novels, um, all of which have subsidiary rights and movie interest and all of that other stuff going on. There is more work to do with my writing career than I one person who is the most interested in it physically can do. Now, if I were an agent, and that, let's pretend I'm that good ethical agent, and I have 20 clients, all of whom have maybe not a career as busy as mine, but a career with 20, 30 books, there is no way I could keep track of every single detail of that writer's career. There is absolutely no way. But I need to keep that writer on my, in my stable because that way to how I earn my money. I'm earning 15% of them. So I tell I'm doing everything. Well, I'm not, I'm just not, it's not physically possible. And so, you know, writers expect the agent to have their best interest at heart. Even if the agent does have their best interest at heart, they can't do the job. Most agents don't have their best interest at heart. Most agents are trying to keep their own business open, their agency or their little piece of whatever big agency they're in. And so they're doing whatever they can with whoever is making them the most money at the time and uh, losing track of everything else. And then there are the, the agents who are pocketing every dime. And there are more of those than you really want to think about.
0: Um, one interview that you did with your husband, um, I think last year or maybe earlier this year, uh, you mentioned that when you fired, or maybe it was, it was him who mentioned it, but that when you sort of got rid of your agents, you suddenly actually started getting approached with more opportunities than you'd seen oh, in, in the past.
1: Tremendously more opportunities. Uh, the the best example is, um, film and TV offers. There's a finesse that you have to have to handle film and TV offers that there's a delicate hand that you need in order to deal with it. Um, and an agent pretty much just would say, you know, how much are you going to pay us? And if somebody came to you and said they wanted a free option, the agent would say, no, go away. Or they'd say, um, you know, we're going to offer you five thousand dollars for six months as a, to option this work, and the agent would say, "No, go away." Um, not paying any attention to who was saying we're going to do that. I mean, there are there are a whole bunch of different things that you want to look at. You want to look and see if they're on IMDb Pro. You want to see if they have a good track record. You want to see if they're in the indie film community, or if they're actually representing Steven Spielberg. In which case, you'd say. $5,000 is insulting money if you're representing Steven. But Spielberg, if they're trying to, you know, do a, a award-winning Academy Award film and the indie thing on a, you know, $10 million budget, which is tiny, um, you might want to say yes. See, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a finesse sort of thing. Um, and so the minute I got rid of my agent, all of this stuff started coming to me. Um, And I would make a lot of choices. I never do anything for free. So all of you who are listening to this and say, oh, she does a free option. No, I don't. I never do because nobody is serious if you give them something for free. Um, But uh, I do listen to all people who come and and try to talk to me about subsidiary rights and give them a chance because they may have an idea. Um, They may have an opportunity that I might have missed otherwise. And uh, no agent is ever going to do that for you. They're going to assume they know, and if they don't know, um, they're just going to say no. Although i got to admit, I have had an agent from a very big agency give out a free option. When I had sent somebody to her in the 90s, I'd sent them to her and said, you know, let's make a, some kind of deal with this person because they wanted to make a deal. I'd gotten them to the point where they could make a deal, and she spoke to him on the phone for an hour and said, sure, you can have it for free. I just – that was the end of that one.
0: Um, you've written about being – that reminds me. You've written about being embezzled. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering if you could, I mean, insofar as you can, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? It was apparently by a prominent uh, organization.
1: I've been embezzled twice by agents that I know of. Um, The first one was by a very famous agent who is still active. Um, And uh, he is really well known, especially in the science fiction community, for um, once he gets caught embezzling, um, having settling with the author and having the author sign a non-disclosure. So when I signed on with his agency, people would come up to me and say things like, foreign royalties are paid in June, and then they'd walk away. And I'm like, what? What is that? This person had signed a nondisclosure. He had been stealing from them through their foreign royalties, and that's all they could tell me. Um, I never signed a non-disclosure. So if people ask me on one-on-one, not on, on tape, um, you know, who this guy is, I'll tell you. Um, because I signed. I didn't sign anything. The other agency, a very big name agency, you recognize it. I'm not going to say the name again publicly because uh, business matters, but uh, I think they're still embezzling from me. I can't get everything away from them, Um, and I, I just got a royalty statement from them the other day. Um, the day that I, I wrote to them because they were, nothing was making sense. And I wrote to them and I said, look, I need, I'm going to, I've been trying for a year to try to get all of our business stuff to make sense from them, all the accounting and everything else. And they weren't cooperating. So I said, okay, that's it. I'm hiring a forensic accountant. They threw me out of the agency by the next morning. I live on the West coast, they're on the East coast. So they had three hours of head start And by the time I got up, I was no longer part of that agency. They had already contacted all of my publishers to tell them that I was no longer represented by them.
0: Speaking of nefarious activities, um, you wrote in a recent article that, quote, it's pretty easy to steal from writers' estates, uh, end quote. Um, uh, Can you explain why that's easy to do?
1: It's easy because, well, a lot of writers never had children. So the estates went to uh, organizations, you know, like the Red Cross or something. Um, but, uh, a lot of the children that writers had or whoever their heirs are, um, know nothing about writing. And so, you know, dad dies and, uh, the agent comes to the kid and says, look, we'll handle this for you. Um, and the kid has no knowledge of anything to do with the writing business, no knowledge of what the agency is doing, no knowledge of how much money should be coming in. And it would be real easy to just keep 75% of it and send an occasional tiny check. The the, uh, uh, kid is never going to know. And there are an awful lot of estates that still exist that are active that there are are no heirs at all. Um, It's just the money goes into some kind of escrow. And uh, the agency can keep all of that. And doctors does. I mean, they're not legally supposed to, but but they do it.
0: Uh, Moving on from the sort of business side of things to maybe the the practice side of things as a self-published author, let's assume agent-free nowadays. um, What do you think generally about subscription models like Kindle Unlimited?
1: I think if they're non-exclusive, they're great. Uh, Anytime you limit where your stuff goes out into the market, you're hurting yourself. um, And you're benefiting whatever company wants to make you exclusive to them. Kindle is is a good example. Um, There are ways to use it that might enhance your um, book release or whatever it is early on. But once you start amassing a large number of publications, you don't want to do that, especially since Amazon will occasionally kick an author off for no reason. And it's really hard to have recourse. So if, you know, for some reason, Amazon thinks you're one of the the bots that is stuffing books or something, um, and you're not, but they randomly accuse you, um, they can cut you off and you would lose all your income. But if you're gone, if you've gone wide, then you're fine. Um, you're not happy, and you may have lost a bulk of it, but you're still published elsewhere And while you're fighting the whole big Amazon thing. So I think subscription models are cool. They're fun. I think that's the way the culture kind of is going with music on um, Spotify and all of those other organizations with Netflix and everything else where you subscribe and you get all this other stuff. But uh, you got to be really careful as a writer to make sure that you're in a non-exclusive position.
0: Um, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, it's always been... Um, a bit of a game to try and get your book in front of other people. Um, I think a lot of people might not know, for example, that you know one of the reasons books are sometimes physical books are sometimes so thick is that then the binding takes up more space uh, on the bookshelf in a bookstore, um, and that people you know will pay uh, to have their book placed prominently at the front of the bookstore. These aren't all just sort of curation decisions being made by the bookstore, and uh, people are often um, you know it's 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 a competitive uh, priced space. Um, But one of the things that's that's sort of a relatively recent um, phenomenon is fighting with uh, obscure algorithms that are subject to change. Um, uh, I remember reading a post by David, uh, Gochran recently, uh, it's from a while ago, but I read it recently called, please don't buy my book. Um, I don't know if you read, if you read that one or remember that one, but he, he, he wrote about how, uh, if you, for example, you know, are publishing a book on Amazon, uh, and then you go out and you say, ask your friends and tell your friends and family about it and they buy your book. What can happen is if, if the, your friends and family aren't conventionally reading, aren't books in the same genre as yours, it screws up the also bought feature that promotes your book on Amazon. And so actually you can kill your book by having the wrong people buy it. Uh, and I was wondering generally speaking, how do you, how do you approach this, this, this issue?
1: I don't worry about it. Um, I, I just don't, um, as I said, I have so much product that, uh, it's mostly irrelevant to me. If you actually look at most of my also bots, they're me, um, which is kind of good. It means people like my work. Um, but readers do what readers do, what readers do. And I, if I get a reader who doesn't normally read mystery, reading one of my mysteries, yay for me. Um, you know, this stuff that we're worrying about on such a minute level is stuff that we're not even going to be thinking about five years from now. And if you actually put it out of the computer context and into the real world context, do you worry about the way that a bookstore in Santa Fe, New Mexico lines its books against a wall? Do you worry that they don't have uh, genre sections? You don't even know. Um, So you just, you know, hope that your book is in there and hope that readers can find you and do the best you can to let your readers and people who are interested in your work find out about you and do the best you can to uh, make them go look for you or to sample. I think it's always good to give them a way to an entryway into your book. That's why I do a free short story every Monday. People will read my short stories. They may like some, they may hate some, but, uh, it, that might give them a lead into my books. And a lot of people have written to me and said, that's what they do. They, you know, they read a short story because they've been reading my business column. And then they read the short story and go, huh, let's see if this woman can actually write. Oh, huh, she can. Okay. Maybe I'll try a book. And, uh, you know, that's that's how I worry about it because if I, if I follow the algorithms, I'm going to go crazy because, first of all, we don't even know what they are. They change every day, and uh, it's just better to do what we do best, which is the writing and the business of writing.
0: Speaking of uh, things one should or should not worry about, um, one thing that constantly surprises me is as soon as I think people have finally gotten over it, I'll suddenly see a new article about concerns over bicep. Uh, Concerns on the part of self-published authors about ebook piracy. Um, what what do you think about that?
1: I've owned retail stores, um, geez, since the '80s, and there's an aspect to every retail store. This is a physical retail store that you have to put into your accounting, and it's called shrinkage. And what shrinkage actually is is theft. Um, there are people that are going to come into your store, and they're going to shoplift. Um, you do your best to prevent them from doing so, but you have to acknowledge the fact that. You're going to have probably a one to five percent shrinkage every year if you have a physical retail store. It's just part of doing business out there in the world. Um, that's how I look at ebook piracy. There is two things ebook piracy can tell you. Uh, one, the, there are pirates out there who are using you to do things uh, to get credit card numbers from all these people. They're, those are the bot kind. And then there are the ones that tell you your prices are too high. The most highly pirated television series um, in, I believe the history of pirating television series was Doctor Who until the BBC realized, and it was in the United States, um, when, and the BBC realized that they needed to release Doctor Who at the same time in the States as they did in the UK, and the piracy stopped. What the viewers of Dr. Who were saying is we want it. We want it now. We're going to get it any way you want it. We will get it legally if you provide it to us legally, but if you're not going to provide it to us legally, we can't wait. So we're going to do something illegal. Um, That's often either your price is too high or you've embargoed it, and people want it. And on the plus side, that's a good thing. People want it. On the downside, you're not providing it in a way that they can consume it legally so you need to rethink your business policies
0: speaking of business policies another uh, constant debate in the self-publishing world is whether or not and sort of mixed metaphors but one should put all one's eggs in one basket or whether you should go wide um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure your answer to this is to go wide and I was wondering if you could explain uh, why you've taken that position
1: you have to go wide um and the reason i say that is because i'm old and, and i've lived through a lot of things um but seriously i'm old and i've lived through a lot of things and and um if you don't if you have all your eggs in one basket and that basket gets destroyed your income is destroyed hang on a minute <clears throat> in traditional publishing You know, that was if you were only published by one publisher and then the publisher went out of business or went bankrupt, you were screwed. Um, And same if you only wrote one genre, we were talking about genres that went away like the spy novel um, or, you know, you were talking about the travel book. Um, And so if you're only doing the one thing, that one thing can disappear overnight. Amazon seems really big and powerful right now, but I'm sure in the United States, a lot of people can remember when Walmart was taking over the world. And if you've been around longer, you can remember when Barnes & Noble was destroying the bookstore. Um, and it, 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 what's big now may not be big five years from now. Go wide. Make your readers have choice. Uh, you Don't dictate how they're supposed to pick up your book. Make it easy for them. And it's going to help you in your career. Yeah, you may only be making fifteen dollars a month on Kobo. Oh well. Well, think of how that's going to go up if if you get kicked off by Amazon because they think you're a bot, or because um, a whole bunch of the other businesses go out of out of um, you know business, or suddenly you become a bestseller in Germany and your book is is really highly priced on Amazon German for some reason, and uh, it's not on Amazon Kobo or on Kobo. Um, and suddenly, you know, all your sales are going to go up in Germany on cobalt. It happens. You just, you, the wider you are, the uh, the better off you're going to be.
0: Speaking of um, variation in income, which is something that all, I think that's just a feature of being a, an author. Um, I read something recently that I'd like to ask you about, and if you haven't heard about it, I can explain a little bit about it. But um, there's an, an outfit, I think based in the UK, called De Montfort Literature um, that's offering this new model in which it will uh, select authors who have uh, applied to be paid a 24,000 pound annual salary and uh, and then presumably get some cut of the sales on anything they've written. Uh, have you heard of that?
1: I haven't heard of them, but I'm laughing because that's the Doubleday model. Okay. Doubleday used to do in the United States in the 60s.
0: Okay, well that's that's really interesting because this this one of the things is it's um, I think it just speaks to how difficult it can be to make a living as an author when so here here are here are the things that when you sign up, you have to agree to when you sign up for this uh, job. Uh, you have to quit any job you have. you have to agree to write exclusively for them. You you have to turn over the copyright to any books you write while you're employed by them. You have to to surrender all subsidiary rights, sign over the rights to the ideas that you propose during that time, agree to hand hand these ideas to a ghostwriter at their discretion, and finally agree not to publish any work for two years after the contract is terminated. Oh,
1: yeah. Except for the thing about quitting your job and the two-year part. That's exactly what the double-day model was in the, in the late 1960s and just some writers who don't have business sense that's going to sound like a great idea but you always have to ask yourself what's going to happen if there's what's what's the downside to this the downside to these kind of deals is the upside if one of your ideas becomes the next harry potter you will not make a dime off of it you won't make any money whatsoever they will and they'll own the copyright and they can do whatever they want to it um and so you know you really just before you sign anything like that you have to think about What And if you decide, even after you've decided, oh, I can I can take the risk that I'm going to be the next Harry Potter and and that's going to happen. And then you say to yourself, well, how will I feel if that does happen? And if you think you're going to be calm enough to shrug and say, okay, yeah, I did it. I made that mistake. Um, Then more power to you. Go ahead and sign it. But if you think, oh, my God, I'm going to be so angry and I'm going to end up suing them and blah, blah, blah. Don't make the deal.
0: Uh, thanks for that great piece of history. Uh, I had no idea uh, that Doubleday had a model like that. That's really interesting. It's it's it, it's curious. It brings up something about the, the kind of way that hope and excitement is actually usually a part of what someone is in, enjoying when they decide to become a, a fiction author. Uh, and to enter into an arrangement in which that hope is signed away. Uh well, Doubleday, something... they... Sorry.
1: I'm sorry, I interrupt you, but I wanted to clarify what Doubleday did was that they had promised they would put the money in an escrow account and they would pay you um, a, a salary on the earnings of that book in the escrow account and they would guarantee it and uh, you lost all the rest of it. Um, and a lot of the writers that ended up staying in that, that system are New York Times bestsellers but they make maybe $20,000 a year still.
0: Yeah, it just strikes me as, I, I guess you'd to enter into something so creative as a kind of drudgery, uh, I think you write about the ham- You wrote something about the hamster wheel that you just published, yeah. this, or this morning. Uh, anyway, I, I just don't really know what what else to say about it, except I, you know, I. If you really love writing, why would you turn it into that?
1: There are a bunch of reasons, especially financial ones, that would make writers do that. Um, and a lot of, like, with the whole devil day model, a lot of the writers who agreed to that uh, salary were impoverished. When they did, and so you know, the idea of being paid five thousand a month or ten thousand a month was untold riches to them, from the perspective of where they were standing, and you know they ha- they couldn't imagine the multiple millions that they could possibly be earning on the other side. Um, that makes it, that that's heartbreaking to me, but uh, that's how writers generally get caught in those hamster wheels. It's generally money, and it's generally not understanding business. And if you understood business, you wouldn't get into that situation in the First place, or if you did, you got into it because you were educated and knew what you were getting into.
0: Speaking of business, it's interesting. I, I asked a question at the beginning of this interview about um, how you, uh, you know, talked about how you can't really learn writing in the same way you learn other things at university. But one thing you can learn uh, is 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 at least some aspect of business. And as I understand it, you and your husband uh, are actually have for some years now have been holding workshops to help authors understand the, the their business.
1: Yeah, we do um, online workshops, which are a combination of craft and business. Um, you can find those on Teachable. It's WMG Publishing Workshops. But we also do in-person workshops. We're doing one in October here in Las Vegas um, called the Business Masterclass. And it's for writers um, of all levels, but we usually are, we gear it toward writers who are already successful in trying to do indie publishing. And since the publishing world is changing constantly. Um, we're bootstrapping each other. We're we're looking at the latest, newest changes, what works, what doesn't, what you should avoid, what you should know, what you should figure out. Um, and uh, it's educational for me every year. And we've been doing it now, I guess, for about um, eight, seven, eight years. Um, and to date, we have not taught the same things every every. we do it every October. Every October is completely different. Yeah. There's one or two lectures that are similar or the same, but out of five days, seven days of lectures, one or two is tiny. Everything else is new.
0: Well, I'll make sure to put a link to that in the transcription, um, of this, of this podcast. Um, our time's almost up and I wanted to finish with a selfish question, which is I I was raised, uh, partly on, um, detective novels that my dad loved, uh, including Ellery Queen. And, um, uh, I wanted to ask you, who's your favorite fictional detective?
1: Favorite fictional
0: detective. If you had to pick one.
1: I know I'm having to think, um, I, that would probably change every single day because I'm never good at one favorite. But I would say that the most influential fictional de- detective on me is Sarah Paretsky's V.I. Warsharsky um, because she kind of opened the door for me, uh, along with P.D. James, who wrote a, uh, Cordelia Gray in, in a book called An Unsuitable Job for a Woman, um, to understand that, you know, that hard-boiled tradition can include women. And uh, I didn't know that uh, until I read that in my 20s and started reading those in my 20s. So I w- I'm not saying that Vic VI is my favorite detective because she irritates me sometimes, <laughs> even now. But uh, probably the most influential for me as a reader and as a writer.
0: Well, thank you for that, that great answer. Uh, and thank you for a great interview. Um, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this.
1: Well, thank you for asking me.
0: Thanks.